where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson. I'm very excited to be joined today by Brad Freeman. Brad is a writer of the Stock Market Nerd newsletter. He has commentary on a lot of stocks. He has some incredible insights that I've enjoyed following him for several years now. You can follow his news newsletter at stockmarketnerd.com. Brad, I'm really excited to welcome you to the program. Thanks for being part of our Seven Investing podcast today. Yeah, the feeling is very mutual. Big, big fan of what you guys do at Seven Investing. So, so glad to chat um, about what we're about to chat about. But I, I don't know if I'm supposed to give that away at this point. But we're going to chat about something. We we are. We actually going to chat about the advertising industry today. It's been kind of you know, Brad and I were talking about what was a topic that we both knew a, a thing or two about that was undergoing some changes. We came up with digital advertising. So in the first part, we're going to talk about some of the companies that are benefiting from the changes that are taking place and others that maybe are on the wrong side of the changes that are taking place. And then in part two of the program, we're also going to see if Brad can spot us up with a couple other companies that he's been following. Uh, like I said, he's got some great insights on a whole bunch of companies. We're going to pick his brain for a little bit of a few that are on his radar. Uh, Brad, are you ready to get started? I'm ready. Let's do it. So, Brad, let me key you up with a couple of statistics about the digital advertising industry right now. Uh, this is a this is an industry that has kind of gone through a tough year recently. Uh, there's COVID pandemic going on. There's an upcoming potential recession that's going on. There's inflation and kind of the confluence of all these has been really tough on the consumer spending part of the economy. And of course, digital advertising where companies are paying to advertise for consumers is one of the hardest hit sectors out there. Um, but it's not across the board that all digital advertising companies are doing poorly. Uh, some have been much more affected by this than others. And so I wanted to talk about some of maybe the glass half full opportunities and the companies that we think are doing well. And perhaps some of those that we think are, are, are getting impacted either by short-term events or long-term changes in this. But Brad, one that you and I both were talking about, we're both actually fans of uh, the 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 green light, the good news, the positive spin on this has been the company called The Trade Desk. Uh, this is a company on the demand side. They are helping larger advertisers place ads within different publisher sites. Uh, maybe I can hand it to you to tell us a little bit about The Trade Desk. I know you've followed it for a long time and maybe tell us a little bit about why you like it. Yeah, so they are, um, they're, well, they've, they've become over the last few years, and I think that's been fortified, the, the de facto platform for the open internet on the demand side. So what they do um, is they take advertisers but they, they they really do it through agencies so they do represent the espns of the world but they're doing it through um global agencies who are really representing espn and and, and as, as sort of the middleman but what they're doing um is kind of transforming this ad placement industry um into um something that has really just been uh, predominantly called upfront markets where where several months in advance you have to purchase millions and millions of impressions um based on sort of an educated guess of, of where of what the traffic is going to look like and how relevant it's going to be for your ad conversions. And they've kind of morphed that into a, a live bidding platform where you can, um, based on um, based on all the, all the data algorithms that Tradesk has been seasoning for over a decade, um, based on the massive list of, of first-party partners they have that they plug the data into um, to kind of augment their decisioning, what they do is really uncover um, the, granu the granular value of, of, of an impression for a specific advertiser um, so that they can spend... Um, that next dollar as effectively as possible, and, and they really allow them to do that um, throughout. They, they do participate in, in linear TV and, and upfronts. They, they do it in, in a little bit of a, a more a sophisticated way, but really their bread and butter is is connected TV. It's, it's audio and mobile and podcasts and, and ESPN.com and, and, and really anywhere outside of uh, these walled gardens um, of uh, maybe Google is a great example is really where Trade Desk, uh, Trade Desk really dominates. And, and they, they do... 
uh, participate a little bit in, in walled garden placement with, with Google and, and Apple, but predominantly um, they are very much so that, that open internet player, um, which has served them well. And I'm sure we'll get into why um, later on. That's exactly the question that I wanted to segue into next is you mentioned open internet and you mentioned walled gardens. What do those terms mean? Why are they important? And how is trade desk been on the right side of this trend? Sure. So walled garden, um, so Google, uh, Meta, even even Pinterest and Twitter are considered walled gardens, but they're, they're a bit smaller. So really, and, and the walls are, are very a fitting symbol of, of what they are. They're, they're trying to wall in or keep in as much data and as much information as they possibly can um, to ensure that there's no data interoperability and, and, and they're not losing um, their first party data edge with, with, with other players in the Internet. So they're not allowing um, tiny players to match uh, the data skill that they have by, by really keeping um, the, these silo, these data silos and, and keeping them very closely um, intertwined in their own ecosystem. So they're not allowing for open sharing. And, and really another side effect of this is, is that, especially for Google, which was Chef Green, um, the CEO of Trade Desk, um, which I know you know, but in case anyone else doesn't know, uh, he, he really, um, he, one of his complaints is they do all of their own measuring. They, they do all of their own, um, they do all their own return on ad spend metrics. So Google is telling you uh, without sharing any of the data, without sharing any of the evidence, here's how it did. And just just believe us and trust us because because we're Google and you can't go anywhere else. So that that's really uh, that's really how wall gardens play. That they, they try to they try to take advantage of their data scale and their user scale, their user scales, rightfully so, um, as, as much as they possibly can to differentiate themselves and, and to kind of tilt the, the 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 playing field in their in their favor. And conversely, in the open internet. Um, they're, they're, these, these, open, these, these data silos do not exist. It's very much so, especially in the programmatic space, a, a live bidding platform where, where you really have several demand side players being matched with supply side players um, and, and, and matching uh, ad impressions and ad costs in the most effective way possible for everybody. So it's, it's a wonderful idea and, and it's very rah-rah and, and make the world a better place and all those wonderful things. But what it does is it leaves you very vulnerable um, to these third-party walled gardens who inherently have access to more money, have access to more data, have access to more users, have access to more everything than you do. And it becomes very difficult to target when they're not really playing ball, which um, in recent years, they've, they've stopped playing ball even even more so. Um, Third-party cookies degradation, Apple's uh, inter-app tracking and, and targeting via IDFA kind of going away has really put the ball in the court of, of these other players in the open internet um, to, to overcome all this signal loss and, and to do um, and, and to create this this compelling return on ad spend anyway, and and within the open internet that that has made scale so important, which is why I, I gravitate to the trade desk because they really are in my mind the only open internet player in charge of their own destiny. Because Google can take can get rid of third party cookies degradation, um, which which by the way only impacts them in in, in one channel really, which which is web and, and not really anywhere else where they play. A Apple can get rid of signal. Um, can get rid of interoperability signaling and, and all the and, and, and everything else to piss off Facebook. Sorry, I don't know if I can say piss off, but to, to upset you sure Facebook. Can. You sure can. You sure can. And 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 then really to upset everybody else in the, in the ad space at the exact same time. So the trade desk needs um, Washington Post and Walmart and Target and 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 Costco and, and these massive players to plug their own data, their own first party data um, treasure chest, really in, into the trade desk's platform. So that it can continue to create this compelling return on ad spend within the open internet, um, when when walled garden players aren't allowing them to, to to use their data as freely as they once did. Um, so so really, if you're if you're big and massive and and, and aren't relying on Google and Apple like the, like the trade desk uniquely isn't, 
Um, you're rather insulated from all these changes that are happening in, in, in the ad land. And that might be conflating uh, two, two topics right now because there's a lot of um, changes going on in the ad land that I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss. But it, it's really the, the trade desk's ability to plug into everyone else in the industry that allows Apple and Google not to be Im important to them and, and whatever they do to sort of be irrelevant to them, especially because um, Google's third-party cookie degradation. Um, may, may, actually, maybe I should stop there because uh, I, I'm about to go into a totally new topic that I'm sure you're about to ask about um, next. So leave it there for now, and then um, go, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll circle back to that point. Brad, I think you, you're very good at reading my mind and actually anticipating the next questions I'm going to ask because that was the next one. I wanted to talk about those topics. Uh, maybe just to kind of key, key everyone up for the next segment here is, you know, there's been some higher level technology changes, several of which, like Brad just mentioned, uh, that are going on that are impacting the advertising industry as a whole. The third party cookie being deprecated, being phased out, which means it's not, you can't just be followed around the internet like you used to because of privacy concerns and a lot of the other things. That has an impact on the companies that were reliant on that. You know, meta platforms, Facebook is down 48% uh, year to date. Snapchat down 75% year to date. These were companies that were reliant on the technology that existed before. Uh, it's been interesting to see the trade desk play by their own rules, uh, not be rela uh, reliant on the cookie, but actually creating their own identifier that in many ways is kind of bypassing several of those limitations. Is that where you wanted to go with this, Brad? Is that a fair setup for you to spike and take this to the next level? Yeah, and and uh, so the, the the identifier you're talking about, and, and again, I'm, I'm sure you know this, but uh, we'll, we'll put a, a name on it for, for all the listeners, it is Unified ID 2.0. So it's, it's really, um, their, it, it, it is their response to cookies, but um, but but it's really their identifier and their, and their anonymous identifier across channels, so across CTV and, and, and podcasts and all these places where cookies was a bit more limited to that um, that, that web uh, dis discoverability niche. So really what, what UID2 is doing um, is getting rid of the, uh, pretty pretty easily identifiable Gmail accounts and and, and and some other data sharing that um, has has been somewhat polarizing, but but um, we'll focus on UID two for now. But what they're doing is 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 making hashed email addresses. So you're they're using your email address, but then they're hashing it, so anonymizing it or, or encrypting it, um, so that you can um, you can be exposed to relevant ads and 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 and, and things that you actually care about across the internet to kind of allow that. And this is what Jeff Green always talks about that quid pro quo of free of free content across the internet, free premium content. Um, in exchange for relevant ads. So with the signal loss of third-party cookies, that becomes much more difficult to do. And you need you need this uh, this cross-industry, cross-channel identifier to really right-size um, ad demand and, and, and relevancy so that you can continue to effectively place advertisements for a compelling ROAS, re return on ad spend, sorry for the acronym, um, without without all of this help from Google and, and without all this identification help. So um, they've, they've done that and it's really been uh, their mission, their journey, over the last year to to rack up um, to rack up uh, supply side partners to rack up technology partners like Snowflake and and, and Salesforce um, to rack up retail partners like Walmart and Target and and, and Walgreens and all of those bellwether companies um, in order to create effective enough scale um, and and they, it's important to note that they don't own UID two they created it and sold it or not not sold it they created it and gave it and, and, and essentially allowed other operators to own it. So that there's not this conflict of interest inherent in their model and they can continue to be this open internet provider um, that equally services everybody without having um, this kind of de, de facto UID2 that's under their umbrella that they're profiting from. They are profiting from it, but they're doing it in a bit more of a clever way by kind of, uh, by kind of rounding up all the support and then being in a prime position to capitalize off of it. Um, so UID2 is essentially third-party cookies, but for 
um, but for web and, and but for uh, streaming and and for podcasts um, and for radio and, and all of these all of these other things. Um, so that when third party cookies goes away and, and they keep delaying it, it was 2023. Now it's going to be 2024. You can continue um, to, to have that level of targeting, that that level of, of precision when, um, when when you're trying to place ad impressions that you had um, before Google and before third party cookies degradation. And even arguably, I think even even beyond what third party cookies was providing, because now you are inviting all these other cross channels in to just augment the process and augment the targeting even more because, I mean, more data points, more relevant data points. Um, for a platform like Trade Desk, where, where all this data is being ingested in an automated way, it just makes the targeting process better and better and better. So that that's what UID2 is um, for them. And it, it's been, I think, uh, no, that that's Salomar. They're, they're trying to have, I forget the goal. It's by 2023, they're trying to have a majority of their advertisers through UID2, something like that. Uh, but but the actual number is, isn't important. What is important is um, traction has, has just, has been far faster and far broader and far more aggressive um, than, than they were expecting. And their expectations are usually pretty darn optimistic. So um, it's it's uh, it's heartening for sure. And and it, it really insulates them even more from, from anything Google wants to do in the future or, or anything these walled gardens want to do in the future because now um, UID2 is really the open internet identifier and, 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 and it's going through UID2 and going through Trade Desk and, and all of that targeting is happening through their platform. Um, that just builds even more data scale and builds even more of a of a of a word I hate to use, but I'll use it here: a moat, um, because because really, in charge of their own destiny is is the way to put it, and, and the only way they've done that is by becoming by far the largest. Um, and UID two just kind of sets themselves up um, to continue being by far the largest and by far the most relevant. Very true, Brad. It seems like the opportunity to follow the innovators is they're creating something new and the trailblazing their own path versus just responding to something that's created by others and being vulnerable to when things like that change. Uh, speaking of, of carving their own path, you know, Jeff Green is not one to sit around and wait for things to change. Uh, he's he's doing say. something new. <laughs> Open Path is a new initiative that, you know, is not getting a whole lot of press right now, but it does have some beta partners on board. Uh, Washington Post and USA Today have been two that have been beta testing us. Tell us about what this is and whether or not you think it's important. Sure. So, um, and we joked about this before the, the call, so we'll, we could joke about it again. Just this is trade desk not entering the supply side. And if, if you're listening to this and not, not uh, watching it, I, I'm using air quotes very sarcastically because it, it very much, okay, they could say it's not it's not their entrance into the supply side, but really what it is, um, is allowing the Washington Post of the world or, or the, the supply side publishers who have the ability to do their own um, yield management, who have the ability to internalize their supply side operations, it gives them a, a direct integration into the demand side um, so that these, these publishers are, are really able to, when they have the resources to, to vertically integrate the supply side operations so that they're just directly working with the trade desk to place um, to place ad impressions through their their publishing network. So um, no, it's technically not. Um, it's I guess it's technically not a, a product that that competes directly with Magnite or Pubmatic or these other supply side players that Trade Desk likes to say nice things about. But it is very much so a, a threat to them in that um, these these massive enterprises who have the resources, who have the capacity, who have the know how. Um, to do yield management now no longer need to plug into the supply side in order to plug into the demand side. Um, Trade Desk and Open Path just created this open path, <laughs> hence the term open path, uh, where they can plug directly in into the demand side. So um, selfishly for me, I, I, I love I love it and I, I want them I want them to take as much of the pie as they possibly can within programmatic advertising. Um, but the downside will be how how these 
relationships with, with Magnite and Pubmatic um, kind of morph how, how they how they really blossom blossom and evolve because um, they can say nice things about Magnite and Pubmatic all they want, but but if they're taking their revenue and their profit share, uh, it will not be an amicable relationship, and you could take that to the bank. Uh, but uh, but that that's really what OpenPath is. It, it's Trade Desk's first um, tiptoeing um, to the supply side and to servicing them directly. And they like to they they like to offer a preface or a caveat any chance they get. Of we're not trying to become the spy side. We're not. That, that's not what we're doing. But yes, they are. Um, and 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 this is, I think, step one. Um, but but we'll see where it goes from here. We are not entering the supply side. In air quotes for anyone who can see it. Very true. Uh, last but not least, before we move on, Brad, one last question. Trade Desk is up 71% during the last month. Uh, certainly refreshing for long-term shareholders like you and I are for this company. 35% revenue growth year over year at a 37% EBITDA margin. Do you still like the stock here? Does it still have plenty of room to run, do you think? Yeah. Uh, so where it goes in, in the next few weeks, um, I'm, I'm sure most of our, our, our listeners are, can, can offer a more intelligent opinion there. But I will just say, and you brought this up in our spaces yesterday, but it will be a different day, I'm sure, when this gets published, that companies, when they scale and when their revenue bases grow, you don't often see revenue continue to accelerate quarter after quarter. And I guess this company is, is the anomaly. So really it's been, and, and, we, and, and we've seen Snapchat do, do very poorly in their results, and, and I'm not going to pick on them because there, there are some very real macro headwinds, and, 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 and there are some things to like about the company, and I'm sure... Um, there's a very formidable bull case, but but for the trade desk specifically, um, it, it, it's a matter of two things. So so that channel diversification that we spoke on uh, that, that really allows them to to kind of and one of the channels, so the most important channel is connected TV, and connected TV is very 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 su supply constrained in terms of um, the demand side wanting to place impressions within streaming platforms. So there is some room for demand destruction, um, which we've gotten a little bit of, but not a lot of within connected TV. Um, interestingly, because of how granular and because of how targeted and how profitable these impressions are for everybody um, compared to linear TV and, and, and buying, again, millions of impressions several months in advance. But really, it's been this this perfect storm within connected TV of Disney's now embracing AVOD and HBO Max is now creating a new a new tier that's ad supported. And Netflix, which which Jeff Green has been telling us is going to happen for a decade, is now finally embracing AVOD and they're going to plug in. Um, to Microsoft Xander on the supply side, which is an intimate partner for the trade desk. So very good news for them there. Um, so that that's really allowed them, and, and, and CTV is more than 40% of their business. So it really is the bread and butter. And and it really has allowed them in, in, in this world that's separated from IDFA, that's separated from cookies, that's separated from all of these places. Um, it, it's allowed them to continue to thrive. And and, and I, I just want to offer the, 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 the side note that even if um, cookies was capable of degradating signal on within CTV. Again, the trade desk is not reliant on them, but it does help uh, when 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 they're in this independent environment when there's no um, market power leader with 99% share of search. So so there's actually a competitive open market for bidding, um, and, and the trade desk really thrives on that. So the other and the other thing that has really allowed them to kind of outperform on a relative basis is is what their business model is based on. So they're not. Um, they're not an impression company. Um, they they are a return on ad spend, a return on ad spend company. So their their goal, their their guiding principle, their north star is to make that dollar that you just spent on marketing um, turn into a dollar fifty or dollar sixty or dollar eighty, and, and to show you exactly how that happened in terms of tangible sales. So when marketing budgets tighten, when macro starts to deteriorate, um, marketing budgets don't go to zero. They 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 shift away from. Uh, the fringe marketing dollars that they were spending to barely get that new dollar in growth, and, and they they tighten their belts to focus on the highest return on ad spend. 
um, w which they need to do even more so when, when things get tough and when marketing budgets shrink. And when that happens, they, they switch to the trade desk. We saw anecdotally in 2008 and 2009 when trade desk was just getting its feet wet, that that happened and, and they, they, they accelerated growth and market share just like they did this past quarter. Um, that happened during the taper tantrum when, when very, very briefly people were freaked out um, and the ad market had a brief blip. It, it was very brief, but we still, we had a few weeks of data points uh, pointing to the trade desk continuing to outperform and thrive. And, and it's because they allow these companies to do the, the, the cliche we always hear. They allow these companies to do more with less. And, and, and when resources become more finite, doing more with less becomes more valuable. And, that, and that's really where the trade desk, that, that's where they shine. So this combination of, of where their value prop is coming from, where they're selling into, uh, not, not to mention the fact that they're a key beneficiary of, of midterm election spend, which is going to add about five, six percent to their growth in the second half of the year. So, so really, I, I hope I hope Trade Desk starts reporting before Snapchat and, and Twitter and all these other companies, because it's, it seems like every three months uh, we get these social media platforms that, that maybe um, have their bread and butter surrounding. We have large user networks and maybe we're not great at targeting or, or maybe we're not great at, at, at return on ad spend. And, and, and so they kind of fall by the wayside. Um, and the trade desk, it, it does not, um, and, and it has not over, over several cycles. So that, that's really where I kind of see its insulation. Another growth lever that we could talk about more if you'd like to is that, that retail media buying uh, partnership that, they're, that they have with Walmart that's now ex expanded, expanded into Gojek and Home Depot and all these other places, just giving them so many growth levers to pull when, when one growth lever looks a little less promising. And no other, co no other company within ad tech has all of these growth levers to pull, and, and, and they've really just been able to seamlessly reallocate and pivot and, 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 and shift resources to where uh, the highest return is and do so very seamlessly. Um, so uh, Jeff Green, if you're listening to this, you rock and, and thank you for making your company <laughs> so easy to own for me. Um, but, but it did, and the last thing I'll say is it did jump from 38 times earnings to like 58 times earnings or something like that right after the earnings report. I did take the opportunity to trim 5% of my position um, but it was 5% of my position. I still remain predominantly invested in, and I'd love to put that 5% back in if, if, we, if we get any kind of turbulence, not, not really expecting that turbulence, just saying I will react to it accordingly if we do get it. Um, I, I don't really, I'm a market reactor, not, not a market timer. So, so that, that's, that, that's the plan, um, but, but I digress and, and, and we can go to the next question if you'd like. It's fantastic, Brad. Thank you, that's incredible insight. One thing I wanted to double click on is uh, Connected TV. You mentioned that a couple of times. This is let's, let's put this as a horse race, right? This is a connected TV horse race. And certainly the trade desk is one of those thoroughbreds that's breaking, you know, far beyond the, the other the other horses in this part of the race. But I want to talk about one of the other horses that seems like they broke fast out of the gate, but has slowed down and is kind of falling back into the rest of the pack as competition has caught them. And that is Roku. Uh, because mm -hmm. I think that Roku was one of those companies that really embraced and saw the opportunity for connected TV, you know, video on demand, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, a lot of companies were kind of, uh, you know, experimenting with digital streaming. They were creating their own connected TV platforms. They were getting first party data of people that were either subscribed to them or even at least, at least giving them a, an email address and some some uh, person uh, personal data that they could use to match up with advertisers. And it seemed like Roku was one of those early leaders that was matching people that wanted to watch connected TVs. It was embedded as an operating system within the Samsung TV or whatever it was you were buying. And then it was matching up through their own platform with the advertisers. But uh, Brad, you know, Roku has had kind of a tough go here in the last couple of years. For a horse that broke fast, it seems like they might be slowing down as competition's catching up with them right now. Yeah, um, and, and I, I will preface all this with saying my, my knowledge of Roku is a bit more surface level than the trade desk. So Simon, if you have anything you'd like to add here, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Um, but, but to me, R Roku, 
their their reliance and and they're they're getting away from this and and, and rightfully so, but their reliance on on part on a large chunk of their operations coming from hardware and coming from hardware sales, may, it just it always made me a bit nervous, especially when you have um, Google selling or giving away YouTube TVs for free. And, and I know Roku, it, it is a better product. I've I've used Amazon's, I've used Apple's, I've used Google's, and I, I've used Roku's. And Roku's a better product, but free is is a is more of a is more of a differentiator to me than than a slightly better product. So Roku, they're, they're doing a lot more with trying to internalize um, a lot more on content and, and trying to bring a lot more content onto their platform. But but to me, um, that, that hardware focus puts them in a lot more precarious of a situation that while they shift to um, trying to emulate a bit more of the programmatic demand uh, value proposition and niche of maximizing return on ad spend through, through their platform, it, it's a transition, and, 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 and we're seeing those growing pain, pains, pains kind of manifest, again, with uh, very surface-level macro issues, record inflation, record low consumer confidence. Maybe I will go to that free YouTube TV instead and, and sacrifice maybe a little lower utility or a little qual- lower quality of product than I would for Roku. But in terms of what they're doing on the software side, um, programmatic advertising, my knowledge there uh, is, is not super is not super dense, um, but, but that was... That when I was researching Roku and deciding on where I wanted my programmatic advertising exposure to come from, that's really what gave me um, initial pause because Trade Desk is just this pure, um, la- this pure software play lacking any kind of conflict of interest within within, um, within the within the industry that allows them to partner with and work with everybody. And and, and Roku's niche and business model is is a tad more um, is a tad less uh, camaraderie. I, I don't even know what word I'm. They're 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 less of a comrade and more of a competitor to these companies, um, and and it's and it's sort of uh, manifesting in those results. But um, again, surface level knowledge and, and Simon, if you have anything to add, I'm, I'm sure you can speak on it more intelligently than I can here. Not really, Brad. All I can do is offer some fun trivia questions, which is that uh, do you cool. know what Ro- love fun do you know what Roku means in Japanese? Oh, it's uh, I know Anthony Woods. It's like his sixth or seventh company. It doesn't it mean it, it means six or seven. I know it means that. You got it. Nailed it. Nailed it. It was it's six in Japanese, and it's just symbolic of Anthony Woods, like you mentioned, sixth company. He's kind of a serial entrepreneur. I got an early yeah. start on this, but you know, it's kind of interesting. The history of Roku. They shared the complex with Netflix actually right. in their early days. Uh, they never made any money off of Netflix. You know, they were just using it for the volume of people. You know, coming into the Roku ecosystem, signing up for Netflix. Of course, at that time, Netflix had no interest in advertising at all. Uh, YouTube was the second most subscribed to on the Roku platform, not making money off of that because YouTube wanted to to control the advertising experience themselves. And this is kind of always where Roku's been the second fiddle, right? Now, as you see other companies like uh, like Disney talking about advertising or even Apple figuring out its own advertising. I mean, it's, it's always been um, the larger platforms are going to want to control that experience and monetize and not be the... Um, the the comrade what was it the, the camaraderie the, the word that we were saying Roku's second <laughs> fiddle and not not in, not in the middle of where the action really is yeah no I I think that makes sense um and and, and I agree so I'll stop there I'm impressed that you knew uh, that that Roku was six in Japanese by the way I did not expect you to know that you delighted me with your response very impressive Brad. Random, random fun fact knowledge for the win. <laughs> uh, the platforms, the last thing I wanted to ask about before we move on to the second segment of the podcast is, you know, everything that we talked about, there's a lot changing in, in digital advertising right now. We talked about a couple of companies, talked about uh, Trade Desk, we talked about Roku, we briefly mentioned Meta and Snap. Um, 
Apple and Google, you know, Alphabet seem very exposed to this too. Is there any other final thoughts you have about this massive industry that is advertising, that's increasingly going online and increasingly going to televisions and all the technology changes? Any final thoughts about where this is going before we move on? Sure. Um, and, and I think I'll take this in the direction of a kind of level setting where the digital advertising market is right now, because not only... And, 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 and you spoke on this or alluded to this very briefly, but when things get very tough from an economic standpoint, one of the first budgets to get cut is, is discretionary spend on growth and, and marketing and promotion and, and all those things because you want to preserve your business and you're less focused on growing it. Um, so not only are they dealing um, with, with more uh, a, a more fragile advertising market via all these macroeconomic headwinds that we don't need to get into right now, um, not, not only... Um, are they dealing with supply chain, continued supply chain issues with, with China reopening and closing and reopening and closing, um, which 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 makes advertisers less hesitant to advertise because they're less confident in their ability to match supply with with demand and, and have that inventory ready to go. Not only are they dealing with all of that, but then Google third parties Google Google third party cookies degradation and IDFA, which which really what it does is is it pretty much prevents interapp data sharing and tracking, which. Companies like Snapchat and Meta were just intimately re reliant upon. They, 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 that, 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 powered, that powered the vast majority of their ad impression calculation pricing. I didn't say that correctly, but, but you, you get what I'm saying. Um, and, and so that went away at the exact same time all these macro issues manifested. And, and at the exact same time when we had TikTok storm onto the scene and, and start taking all these advertising dollars from everybody else. And at the same time from, from Meta specifically, where they're dealing with this Reels content transformation where Reels doesn't monetize very well at all right now, and but that's what people want to see all the time on Facebook. So they have to transition to Reels, which is raising engagement, but it's lowering monetization because it's going to take them a long time to ramp that in line with, with news and, and feed. So there's just so many headwinds blowing against this field right now. And, and I think um, and I, I think it just needs to be considered. Y yes. And I own, so I own in the space, the trade desk, I own meta, um, mass group sort of plays in the space as well in terms of advertising. Um, but it's, it's been very, con a very consistent theme of very, very fragile advertising budgets, very fragile advertising appetites. And, and when you see um, all these things kind of play out, I, I think it, it makes sense that Snapchat had a terrible quarter. It makes sense that, that Facebook is doing really poorly. And, and I don't think it's as permanent as maybe some people are are um, extrapolating it to be because I do think reels will season and mature eventually. I do think um, inflation will come down. I do, I do think consumer confidence won't remain at generational lows. I do think supply chains will figure themselves out. And, and there's just a lot of things going wrong, going incorrectly. I'll, I'll use the correct um, grammar there, going incorrectly for them right now where there's this massive wall of worry for them to climb. And as we continue to climb this massive wall of worry with all of these intimidating headwinds kind of falling by the wayside and it's gonna take a while for that to happen, um, things could look a lot better for these companies. Um, things, things could look a lot more encouraging um, for these companies. And that's kind of how I expect things to play out. And I, I do um, avoid a lot of the companies in this space and just and flock to the cream of the crop because I think, well, I think the trade desk has kind of shown why, that, why that's important um, as, as macro cycles cycle. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's where I'm at right now. Kind of, um, I want to hold the hand of, of the advertising industry and say it's going to be okay because I, I do. It's just everything that can be going wrong for them right now is going wrong for them, and I don't think that's going to last forever. It is going to be okay. It's not going to last forever. The macro is certainly working against the digital advertising right. industry. Yeah. <laughs> the pat on the back. It's going to be all right. Hang in there. Um, 
Thank you to uh, to YCharts, our partner, by the way, for for powering the uh, year-to-date returns numbers. You can follow them. They're data visualization, great for fundamental analysts. They are at YCharts on Twitter. And again, our guest today for the podcast is Brad Freeman. Brad has the Stock Market News, Stock Market Nerd newsletter. You can check that out at stockmarketnerd.com if you want to follow his analysis. Brad, we've been chatting about digital advertising, but let me key you up with a couple companies that you also really like, uh, not necessarily in this space. So maybe the segue is Alphabet because this company's founders came from Google beforehand. Right. That's Upstart. Upstart was another company yeah. that, you know, I know that you follow, uh, you've been chatting about recently because they've kind of had a management pivot recently. Uh, what, what's going on with Upstart right now? Yeah, so level setting this with um, Upstart plays in that, that subprime borrowing field. They're trying to infuse more data in, into the loan origination decisioning to uncover more of those hidden prime borrowers and 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 enhance risk quantification. And, and really, they, they, they give these tables on here's, here's FICO bands and how much risk and defaults vary by FICO band versus our risk bands. And, and it's been consistently a lot better for the last, well, almost decade now. And, and we've gotten another, we've gotten a, a massive credit shock um, in our, in our back pocket to deal to, to use now as, as a lot more insight. And it's held up relatively well for their partners specifically. But um, for Upstart, uh, the issue for them is that only about, uh, and I think it got up to 30, it got up to 33% this quarter, but it's gotten from 25 to about 33% of their loan volume is retained and stored on the balance sheets of their actual partners. So what that means is they are very reliant on institutional funding for the other two thirds of their loans um, to, to actually fund these originations that, they, that they're um, facilitating through their marketplace. Um, so how they did this throughout 2020 and 2021, because this was a this program started in 2018, so it's relatively new. But um, when asset-backed security markets were absolutely rocking and rolling and with all this access liquidity slashing around in pockets, they leaned heavily on, on ABS asset-backed security markets to place a massive amount of volume um, through fast money hedge funds, through private equity firms, uh, through financial institutions that don't typically play in the space, but were able to in 2021 because they were buying a loan at, at, at par value and selling it at 108 percent of par value in two days. So they were making an eight percent yield with essentially no balance sheet risk, and that really revved up the upstart engine and allowed them to just ridiculously grow throughout 2021. Um, now in 2022, and, and this is where I, I think that Google context is important because they, they all come from technology. This entire leadership team is, is technology based. There's not a lot of financial institution background or experience there, when, which means um, the, the amount of experience with dealing with monetary cycles or credit cycles maybe has been a little lacking and, and maybe has shown up in their last few quarters of results because uh, two quarters ago, after they got yelled at by Jim Cramer on on Mad Money, and 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 they caved, which they shouldn't have, but they caved. Um, they they said we're not going to use our our balance sheet to fund loans anymore, which which meant, um, with as much with as much excess demand as, as they had in their platform from stimulus checks going away and and for credit demand rising coincidingly, they were turning down borrowers left and right in last quarter. They they were extremely funding constrained. <laughs> and and it's frustrating as an investor because they had all this demand um, that, that they, they they could have funded, but because they committed to not using their balance sheet, um, they 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 essentially took a massive revenue hit. Um, now they pivoted again to saying, um, well, they they did two things. So first they said we're going to pursue longer term uh, financing and, and institutional funding to make um, disruptions across credit cycles a little less abrupt. To that, I thought, why were you not doing that from the very beginning? And 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 again, that's I, I think that's a byproduct of of the entire team coming from Google and maybe not having a ton of financial um, institutional experience. Um, but so so uh, they, they had to seek out longer term funding. 
But they also said that that's going to be a transition. It's going to take us a while to line that up. And and the lack of funding availability in, in this time of macroeconomic turmoil is 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 causing us to forego funding loans that that could yield us um, with a high degree of confidence, eight, nine percent and and bolster our own profits, despite the fact that we're using expensive warehouse facilities um, to fund them. So Upstart essentially pivoted and said, you know, screw this. <laughs> we're we're going to use our balance sheet. We're we're going to we're going to fund the balance sheet. And if you don't like it, Jim Cramer, you can go away and find another company to invest in because we don't care what you think. And good job, Dave Garrard, for doing that. I I, I appreciate that. Um, but uh, <laughs> where where I'm going with that um, is essentially Upstart said, we have all this demand. We know we can collect eight percent yield on these loans if we fund them with our expensive warehouse facilities. So we're going to do that not only to bridge the gap between now and when we have more funding. But, but but also to build more of a proof of concept and to give more data um, to their bank partners to show here here's when things were really tough and our loans continue to outperform. Because for financial institutions, okay, great, your loans were outperforming in 2020. The, the question I always got about Upstart, and rightfully so, is what happens when things don't look so good? And right now things don't look so good. And and so if, if they turn off the funding faucet and, and just say, we're not going to use our balance sheet and we'll let demand shrivel, they lose a vital opportunity to build, uh, to build this, this data and this proof of concept out across very difficult times so that when this next credit shock comes, when, when we have this next credit cycle and this next credit shock, they have all this data to show their banking partners saying, chill out, we, we did just fine um, throughout, this entire, throughout this entire downturn. We targeted minimum yields of 3%, which has been pretty consistent as a minimum for upstart so far, which is in excess of, whatever, of what, you can, um, what you can find um, or maybe not anymore, but it used to be in excess of federal funds rate. Um, so that probably needs to go up a little bit in, in order for them to remain competitive. But really, that, that's a very long way of saying Upstart has embarked on this two-pronged um, pivot. So pivoted to not using the balance sheet, then pivoted to using the balance sheet um, because they want to build this data treasure chest, because they want to collect this 8% yield, because they want to um, not be completely at the disposal of, of these financial institutions to be funding their loans. Um, and this is really... This is the argument for for a banking charter. This is the argument for why a banking charter makes sense. Because another holding of mine, SoFi is is enjoying, and, and they they deal at the high end of the credit spectrum. So it's it's different from that respect. But how it's not different is Upstart or, or SoFi can use deposits um, in, in their ecosystem to fund these loans. They can use very low cost, very high profit high profitability funding when institutions back away. So that they 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 don't need to say well we'll just let our volumes drop by fifty percent because no one's going to fund our loans screw that we're going to fund our loans and 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 we're confident in our ability to do so um, so that that that's the benefit of a banking charter but how this re- how this resolves itself for Upstart and and, and I'll, I'll I'll leave it there because I've been rambling for a bit but how it resolves for Upstart is really they they need one third of, of, of origination volume happening with partners to go to fifty percent into two thirds into three quarters into the vast majority of their book. Because that, that's the, that, those are the durable funding sources. Those are the funding sources that have access to the lowest cost of capital, that, that can hold loans to maturity, that don't need to flip like fast money hedge funds for immediate profit and no balance sheet risk. Um, and and that, that model of, of leaning on fast money hedge funds will work wonderfully in, in the 2021 type periods. And, and it will work horridly in the 2022 type periods. And that's really the whipsaw we've seen. Um, and, and, and it's played out in a very rosy 2022 guide, given that's since been greatly pulled back. Um, but but that, that's really where Upstart is. The, the, it, it's, they, they've got, I, I don't think 2022 is going to be kind for this company. I think, I, I hope things have gotten as, as bad as they're going to get in terms of exogenous forces and macro factors. And, 
and, and the sheer pace of the rise in the two-year yield, which is how they benchmark their own loan pricing, which has cooled off a little bit, thankfully. Um, but uh, it, it's really about Upstart transitioning from this company that will cyclically thrive or cyclically fall by the wayside to one that, that can hold up throughout credit cycles. And that's how they do it. They, they, they need banking partners to continue originating a larger portion of their volume. Um, and this transition period is how they're going to hopefully prove to them that it's worth doing um, regardless of how things look. There's a transition that's needed for sure. If you're Dave Girard right now, this is my last question about Upstart and then I wanna move on. But if you have limited resources right now, you've got the option of using it, you're using your balance sheet, or exactly the question, you buy back shares knowing that your share price is down 90% from its high less than a year ago. What do you do as Dave Girard right now? What do you do? What, what do you, what do, I, you I put, do? I put the, the, the crown on you here, Brad. You make the decisions of what should Upstart spend its capital and use its resources for. Do you buy back shares? You expand the business? You take on the balance sheet yeah. risk? Where, where do you go with this one? So today, um, I, I would prioritize expanding the business and, and growing volumes over the buyback for sure. I, I will um, offer the sort of caveat that this is a very cash-rich company. Um, it, it has been deeply profitable and in this past quarter, which again, hopefully, but but likely uh, macro forces are gonna be as tough as they're gonna get, they, they essentially broke even and, and raised their restricted cash balance. Um, so, and, and they guided to adjusted EBITDA break even for the next quarter, which for them is a very good proxy for free cash flow. Um, but so, so they, 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 they have the flexibility to to buy back shares, to fund loans, to, to do all these things while continuing to bolster their balance sheet. But at the same time, a, a buyback, <laughs> A buyback this early on for the company, 10 years in when I'd like this to be, and it's going to be extremely lumpy, not not 30% growth a year, but I'd like this to be a 30% compounder over five, 10 years. Um, it's hard for me to believe that there's not a, a source of, of investment or a source of funds for maybe investing in that, that business to business loan product, or the small loan product, small, I'm sorry, the small business loan product, or maybe investing more heavily in auto or mortgages or, or payday loans. Um, if, if they are if they're kind of um, conceding any spend in, in, in R&D categories or growth, or growth at, the, at, at the cost of buybacks, I think it's a terrible decision. And, and I, I don't have um, much insight into their, um, in, into their day-to-day balance sheet and, and how they, uh, or I do have insight into their quarterly balance sheet, but how they're managing cash on a day-to-day basis um, and how they consider, how undervalued they consider their shares to be or whatever you want to call it. Um, but you don't you don't buy back shares when when you're when you're a growth company pursuing several new opportunities unless and I don't know if this is the case they can do everything at the exact same time and, and continue to have a, a healthy balance sheet. To me, it's a little hard to believe that that they can. Um, so and and I don't know. Um, they they did buy back some shares last quarter. They said they're going to continue to, but that should be the very last priority of capital allocation in my in my view. Great point, Brad. I also like the points you made about the management team coming from Google. They want to train the AI algorithms. They might not have as good of a financial backing. Maybe it's time for a shakeup of the board directors or at least some new blood that understands the industry a little, at least has a different perspective on it. Uh, let's go to the final company that we want to chat about. You mentioned it earlier. This is the one that has the banking charter, serves the higher end of, uh, of the market for financial services, SoFi. Also has a very different leadership team than, uh, than the Google executives. They went on to form Upstart. Tell us a little bit about SoFi. What do you like about this company? Yeah, so Noto uh, was a banking executive at Goldman Sachs, Crystal Point, uh, financial institution, uh, veteran. So kind of uh, a lot of, this is gonna sound like the polar opposite of what I just said from, from Upstart because um, this company is killing it. And, and this company is killing it despite the fact 
that their largest, most profitable business in student loans continues to be severely challenged by the moratorium, and they continue to beat and raise guidance anyway. Um, so how is that happening? Um, for, well, their, their, their average borrower has, a, has an, an annualized income of over $150,000. So stark contrast to the, the cohort that Upstart is servicing. And as a result, their delinquency rates and their char charge-off rates, while we've seen the industry kind of go in a very negative direction after stimulus faded away, continues to set record lows for this company because stimulus didn't boost their cohort as much as it did for some of these other um, companies. And, and so coincidingly, that stimulus going away is not hurting them as much either. Now also, what, what's so important for SoFi is their product diversification. So they have, they have mortgages and, and they have um, and they have other types of loans that do really poorly when rates rise, but they have an ability through, through again, through product diversification to pivot resources away from mortgages to any, to all of their, um, variable to fixed refinancing products into their home improvement products, loans, their personal loans that soar in demand when, when, when rates go up and, and when, when budgets get stretched and people need to borrow more. And, and that really, um, th that really has allowed SoFi and, and with, in, in conjunction with this banking charter, um, which allows them to kind of plug gaps in a, an affordable way with their balance sheet. It really allows them to, um, to to perform well, regardless of how the macro cycle looks. It, they're they're doing what I they're they they're performing as admirably, and it, they're very different companies. But this is how I want Upstart to look in the next credit cycle. Um, follow the roadmap. Don't don't follow the becoming a super app or the consumer facing app or um, or anything like that. But but follow um, the, the funding diversification. Um, and, and how Upstart does that is, is, is through pursuing longer-term financing with institutions and building its, its proof of concept. But but for up, for SoFi, that proof of concept, I mean, I mean, it, it's it's been built. Um, and, and so, uh, not not only is is the loan book looking extremely good, but they continue to sign bellwether clients. Um, they didn't offer the, the name of the Brazilian bank, but Technicus signed a top five Brazilian bank last quarter. Um, Galileo recently signed H and R Block. They have um, Chime and Robinhood and all all of these bellwether clients that are. Um, paying them for their B2B API services. And really that allows SoFi to, to and, I, and if, if you listen to me talk a lot, this might sound a bit redundant, but it, it, it allows them, their, their growth to float um, in a more correlated manner with FinTech growth, which is supposed to be rapid for a long time, rather than them, rather than them solely leaning on SoFi and this consumer facing brand in a largely commoditized space um, to find all of their success. Now, and it not only insulates them in, in that regard, but it, it vertically integrates their tech stack. So they're not paying uh, a 2% fee for um, their payment processing API. They're not paying a, another 2% fee for their core banking. They're, they're pocketing all of this money and they're creating new revenue streams by selling all of these services to other companies as well. Um, which just, it just, it makes this such a, such an interesting business and, and how this all manifests and, and from a consumer point of view, um, and I'm kind of lumping ideas together, but they really are all connected for SoFi and they really all do go hand in hand. But, this banking charter allowing them to have more, a more profitable loan book paired with vertical integration of their tech stack versus not even remotely close to vertical integration for their legacy competition versus having this vertical integration and this banking charter without a massive uh, network of fixed costs through having um, banking channel or banking branches all throughout the United States with tellers and it's a massive fixed cost. It makes SoFi very lean um, within financial services and how that manifests is as, as a 2% yield um, on, on their high yield savings account, which other companies are trying to chase them. But every time they do, SoFi just raises, there's more um, because they're really, they're inviting or doing whatever they can to bring direct deposits into their ecosystem so that they can cross sell uh, these personal loan and student loan and, and equity run investing products. And they're willing to sacrifice because they have all this cross selling um, potential 
Um, and, and because they have all of these vertically integrated cost savings, they're willing to sacrifice a percent or 2% or 3% on their net, on their net interest margin within their loan book, which Wells Fargo and Bank of America and JP Morgan are not at all willing to do. They're, they're maximizing return on equity right now. They're not focused on revenue growth. They're, they're not focused on anything else but return on equity. And that really gives SoFi uh, kind of the leeway and the flexibility to stand out in a very hyper commoditized space, um, which I don't generally like investing in, but SoFi stands out in all of those ways and, and makes me comfortable doing so. Brad, we chatted yesterday, so it's two days in a row that I've gotten to hear your insights about this, but we talked yesterday about follow the leaders and how some of the market leaders can gain share during unfavorable macro conditions. Uh, SoFi came public through a SPAC, I believe it was last April or last May. It's been a little bit more than a that year now. Out. Yep, down down by down about 30%. But based on everything that you just said, it seems like they're growing as a business. They're, they're going for the growth rather than just the profitability. Are you a fan of shares right here? It's at $7 a share for SoFi. Am I a fan of shares? Well, I, I own a large position and I'm not willing to, to, to part ways with any of it at this point in time. And I am more so in it. I've, I've done, I haven't done any trimming recently. Well, no, I haven't done any trimming recently and I've been accumulating in the last few months, but that was more so around six bucks a share. So right now, pretty much, um, pretty much just holding. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, what, what you're saying um, is, is just spot on and, and, and it's exciting really because I, I think we're going to see a lot of share consolidation um, go to uh, the trade desks of the world in programmatic advertising that go to hopefully, hopefully selfishly for my sake, the crowd strikes of the world in cybersecurity and go to hopefully again, selfishly for my sake, the SoFi's of the world in digital banking, um, because you, you can't fund, there, there aren't venture capital firms looking to fund a negative gross profit endeavors with, with terrible unit economics anymore just to get placement and growth at all costs. Like that, that's gone away. So these companies that can deliver growth while they're delivering operating leverage like SoFi's shown, they've turned deeply a bit of positive over the last several quarters, and they're supposed to get to gap net income positive next year. Um, that, that's really the combination that people are looking for, and, and it allows them to continue to invest aggressively because because they're not they're not sacrificing burning through all the cash on their balance sheet through terrible unit economics of their operations. So that was a very long way of me saying I agree, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, Brad Freeman is at Stock Market Nerd on Twitter. Definitely worth a follow or check out StockMarketNerd.com to follow his newsletter. Brad, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for being on the podcast this afternoon. Always fun. Really like your company. Really like you. So happy to do it whenever. Also, a thank you to Luke Hallard for producing this episode of our 7investing podcast. Thank you, Luke. Uh, and thank you for tuning in to this edition of our 7investing podcast. Covered a lot of ground, a lot of great insights from Brad here this afternoon. Really appreciate his time as always. We're here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.